there is now a way to contact the Wolf Connection podcast. Send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some wolves. Joining us here today from Astoria, Oregon, she is a wildlife photojournalist, a filmmaker, and a conservationist all rolled into one. She has wonderful projects that she has started and she's working on, and her photographs are just top-notch. We welcome Morgan Heim to the Wolf Connection podcast. Morgan, it's a pleasure to finally meet you and see the person behind all those wonderful photos. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, John. I'm excited to nerd out on wolves with you. <laughs> That's awesome. And we want to nerd out with you too about your photography. And we we just spoke with Julie Argyle. So we've had this run of photographers come on and it's really unique to speak with all all of you about your, your different journeys and what you look for when you go out there. So how did your photographic journey begin? Was it camera in hand at a young age or did you roll into it at a, at a different time? I, I kind of fell into it. So, you know, when I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to work with wildlife um, and I always thought it was going to be more on the science end. So I was just like, following that path hard all through college and my first jobs outside of college. And it was actually while I was working on one of my first summer field uh, jobs when I was a fresh, just finishing freshman year in college that I got more into photography. Um, So I had a job up in Alaska where we were just like on this remote Island for nine weeks and the only thing I took with me was a really cheap camera and a bag of film. And uh, so when I finished my like catching salmon, I was up there doing a salmon reproductive study. And when I finished that work, I would then take the camera out and go photograph the wildlife <laughs> and the landscapes that were around us. And um, didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I got really hooked on it and didn't see the results until months after I got home because I had to develop like a couple rolls at a time. That was all I could afford to do. And, um, but I was hooked. And, and as things went along, I, I just kept increasingly taking more and more photos, learning more and more things and um, started to become really, really interested in the stories that were behind the reasons why all the science was happening. And I loved that the access that the field research gave for actually being out there long enough to see some really cool behaviors Mm. that, you know, you just don't see if you go out for a daily walk, you know? So um, I eventually just decided to shift completely over from science to storytelling. And it's just been like a a long, fun journey ever since. So when you were in college, I I saw that you got uh, environmental journalism, zoology. Did you see yourself, even though you said you found the photography afterwards, that you really wanted to merge these two different uh, studies and, and different subjects together already, because it seemed like you were already on this track of conservationism and and photo photo journal, you know, journalism in general. So was that something always in the back of your mind? And and once you did that study in Alaska, you just you were off and running. More or less, yeah. I you know I think that there's a lot with those two fields that go hand in hand. You'll talk to a lot of photographers in my field, and you'll hear a similar story of you know starting off in science. And, you know, there's similar veins of just that curiosity and wanting to know how things work. And 
Um, I think one of the big differences is the priority being on communicating that versus, you know, studying it and, and keeping it kind of in a more academic setting. So I think that the, they naturally went together, but I found that since um, I've been doing this for a while now, um, at first it was all about, hey, if we make this easy for people to understand, people will care about wildlife um, or will understand things better or treat them differently. And I find now that, you know, there's a lot more work that needs to go into sharing stories of wildlife than just making it easy to understand. Um, there's a lot more factors involved than purely understanding the science behind a, a mm -hmm. dynamic that's happening in the wild. Um, so science is just, it's an important aspect of what I continue to do, but it is, it's just like one component of actually telling the story. It's so important to really be pulling in culture and um, religion and art and all of these other facets that make us who we are and, and care about the things that we care about. Were you thinking to yourself at some point, like I need to take this from storytelling and passion to those two things plus career, or was that a, just a natural trajectory or how did you approach making it into that? Yeah, it was a big question mark. I mean, that, that, was definitely in my mind the whole time. I didn't want this to be something that I got to do in my spare time or got to do when I retired and had saved up enough money. Uh, you know, I wanted this to be what I did for my life. And there was no clear roadmap. Um, the, the easiest thing, the easiest step I had to kind of get on that path was to go to grad school for environmental journalism. And that helped start to not only build a very specific skill set, but create a bit of a network in a community to, to kind of get a foot in the door. But at the same time, when I was in grad school, um, that was back in 2009, we were just sitting there watching the complete disintegration of the journalism industry of everything that we had been sort of told going into it was would be sort of like our pathway to have a career. And it was like newspapers are closing, magazines are, you know, paying very little. A lot of outlets are paying nothing for the stories and, um, you know, grants are few and far between. Plus here I am a newbie and it's like, what editor is going to send me out on an assignment to shoot, even though I have a master's degree in this, you know, it's, it's like, you have to figure out, all right, um, how do I make a project happen just because I'm going to make it happen? And I don't have, uh, I am in debt from school. Um, I don't, I have a, like a halftime job and, and I want to do a big project that's going to help like really test all the things I've been learning and work on something that I care about. So it was a long, slow process. Um, we did some things like establishing that first personal project and doing some crowdfunding to help get that off the ground and, and really just sort of loading up the credit cards and, making the best of it and, and then really trying to sell what we, we shot when we came back and, and, you know, help get the story of we, my friend Joanna Nasser and I did a project on endangered fishing cats in Thailand. And so we were just trying with our scrappy little team to get as many stories into magazines and events and presentations as we could to help um, boost people's awareness of the fishing cat and, and do what we could to, 
support a little bit the Thai team that was working over there. And that was critical, I think, to um, helping to get more established. And in the process of doing that, you know, getting involved with groups like the International League of Conservation Photographers and the North American Nature Photography Association. Um, those were both really important for building that community as well. It's not until like three years ago or four years ago that I actually was not panicking on an almost like weekly basis about, am I going to make enough money to pay, you know, my rent next month? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel that because we're, we're, yeah, I know we're all in that that industry of when's the next paycheck coming or when you finally land the gig or you, or you find the, the niche and you're like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> I can like, you can sort of like take your claws out of the, you know, off, off the, off the, uh, the bumper there for a minute and be like, we're okay. <laughs> That's uh, a great way to describe you are, it. <laughs> you know, you're just like, okay, we can relax. Uh, you, you are a senior fellow of the, you mentioned the international league of conservation photographers. So you're a senior fellow how did you get involved with that? Was that just building projects and finding that organization and learning that you guys had mutual goals and ideals? Is that how that works? Or, or did they find your work? How does that, how does that happen? You know, I, I feel like I was really lucky because I, I had gotten a college scholarship with the North American Nature Photography Association. So if, there, if you've got any listeners out there that are in college, this is a great scholarship for them to apply to where you get to go to this conference and meet all sorts of people in the industry and get your portfolio reviewed and work on a project and stuff like that. So I, I had gotten that and it was when I was at that summit that there was a meeting um, of the ILCP and there were a bunch of the fellows there. And I, I learned about them at this meeting and, um, it was just through kind of being in those two environments where I got to know some of the folks. Um, and I ended up getting invited to apply to their emerging league. Um, and I, I think back now and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad it was, you know, in 2008, because I don't know how the heck I would have been invited with the work that I had at the time. But, um, you know, I was working on a, a master's project on a place called the red desert in Wyoming and, um, the pool of people, uh, especially younger people working in this field was still pretty small. And so they just, they saw that genuine interest and must have been some glimmer of talent and decided they wanted to foster that. So I was very lucky. I just, I kind of had to apply only as a formality and um, got into the emerging league. Now it's like, it's, it's a much more involved process where you have to, you know, write all these essays and get all these recommendations. I mean, I had to get recommendations too, but um, it's definitely, um, I think the competition is much stiffer for getting in now. And there's so many talented people that, you know, they apply and, and they don't get in. And I'm always like, you know, I've seen, I've seen some of the ones I haven't gotten in. And I'm like, Oh shoot, you should still be in there. But um, I think that it's, you know, it just, the process evolves like that. And, and I've worked my way up kind of the ranks from emerging league, obviously. So every couple of years I would apply again for the next level. And, and I've been very fortunate to, now be a senior fellow. Wow, I'm I'm uh, I'm looking at your site here. There's a 
there's a section on your site called Notables, and it highlights a lot of instances where you've been recognized for your skill. And are there certain ones that are especially important to you or meaningful to you? Um, well, I mean, so on my site, I think it's like the Viola environment. Um, it's it's now the wildlife it's the wildlife photographer of the year award, and I was commended in their conservation photojournalism category back in 2018 um, for a portrait of a roadkill deer that um, is part of a series that I've created called Last Leap Towards Flowers, where I go out and I find animals that have been killed by cars. Um, and then I, I basically surround them in flowers, um, kind of like a, an old Renaissance painting. And I wait till dark and then I paint light back onto their bodies to try to give them, I wanted people to look at roadkill as to remember the, the beauty of the creature that was lost because of our roads rather than to be grossed out by it. And um, that, that picture ended up being honored in wildlife photographer of the year and um, was projected at the world economic forum. And, you know, that's a huge honor for me. Um, I think in our kind of world in terms of competitions, that's, that's probably like the biggest wildlife photography competition. And um, yeah, so that one, it was a really special experience. And it felt like I had a chance to get that picture to have a lot more impact because of it. Actually, this is a great segue to my, <clears throat> my next question. I, I know we can't speak for all photographers and the importance of art is always subjective, but in your mind, what, what else aside from art do you feel obligated to communicate in your photographs? The reason I take pictures is to further our care for the natural world, create better relationships with it, um, make people want to engage. So if, if my photography weren't doing those things, I wouldn't pick up a camera. I'd go do something else. I'd go back to science or, or something like that. So that, that's the primary objective um, with my photography. And I'm still kind of evolving and learning how to execute that in the way that I think is going to be most effective. And I think sometimes different projects lend themselves to different approaches. So like that portrait series is much more kind of like editorial fine art, um, uh, almost like studio photography. Uh, but then there's other yeah, projects cool. that are much more straight photojournalism, but I'm, I'm still trying to make it, the images um, look deep and beautiful. Um, so, you know, I'm working on another project now that's, that's looking at blending portrait photography and um, working with a fashion photographer to reinterpret um, attire that scientists wear in the field when they're learning about wildlife. So, and that's going to entail like, you know, these very kind of like transmedia immersive experiences once it's rolled out, you know, for, for audiences, which will be a whole different permutation. So I, I love that creativity of trying to figure out how to take this photographic medium and then find new ways to use it to, to kind of surprise people about how to relate to the natural world. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely, that's really really incredible when you're when you're talking about are you taking on a project do you want to evolve uh, engage in a new project or a new story what's your approach because it seems as though you 
and I'll touch on one that um, that I saw that that relates to to the wolf topic. But what is your do, do you wake up one day and you say, "Ooh, I just had an aha moment," or is there something that you're out and you're shooting other photos and you something comes to you in that vein? Is is it a natural organic process, or or do you try and build out you know your future projects uh, in that way? You know, it's a bit of both. I, I actually had kind of a crisis moment a couple years ago where, you know, sometimes there are these projects that for whatever reason you hear something and it just jumps out at you and you're like, I have to work on this. Um, an example of that for me was the trespass uh, marijuana project where, um, drug cartels are, are growing, you know, industrial scale plantations on public lands and it's having a lot of environmental impacts. And, and I had, read a couple scientific papers because I'm a nerd and that's what I do. And I'd gotten really like outraged about it. And then I finally, I was just like, you know, if, if I either need to go work on this or I need to let it go because I don't want to just be one of those people that gets outraged, but doesn't do anything, you know? So, um, that's how that project started. And it was very much sort of like instinctual and a gut feeling. Um, but a couple years ago, I was at a point where I wanted to develop a new project and um, I, there were so many different kind of subjects that I found really interesting. And I was in that mode of like, well, this is cool. And that one's cool. Why would I choose this one over that one? And, and it just started to be, it felt um, almost meaningless. Like, how do I choose? Cause I feel like there has to be a, a personal reason for why you decide to embark on a big project. You're going to be putting a lot into it. And so to just arbitrarily choose didn't feel right. Um, but there was this one species that was um, right where I lived. And I, it's something that for years I kept coming back to and, and thinking the questions related to it were really interesting. And so I, I got to shoot a story for Audubon magazine where I, I went to China to work on this bird called the Chinese crested tern, which is critically endangered. And the biologist that I went with was um, an Oregon biologist from Oregon State University. And he happened to work on this other bird that I had been interested in. And so we got to talking and it was just like, okay, I feel like this is a sign that I need to dive into this a bit more. So I've been working on a project on cormorants for the past couple of years. And it's taking me to places I never thought I would go with photography and, and also melding some scientific, kind of like turning the camera into a scientific tool and melding science and art that way using time-lapse. And I'm having a blast with it. And um, it feels really right to do. And so that's a really long-winded answer of being like, Sometimes it, it happens naturally and sometimes it takes some work, but um, it has to feel, it has to feel right inside. I think you have to, and I don't know how to describe knowing that feeling. I think it's just something you, you know, when you stumble across it. Yeah. It seems like it's an innate, it, it just, it comes to you naturally and you go, all oh, right, this is where I'm supposed to be at this specific time. Or, or I feel that certain times too. I, I totally agree with you. So the the one story I wanted to to touch on, at least that that hits on what we typically talk about, is uh, a man, his dog, and the golden wolves. So can you go through 
because uh, Steve and I were looking at it beforehand and I, I was looking at it uh, as I was doing some research and putting this together. So just describe, I mean, for any of the, anybody who's listening and wants to follow along, you can go to Morgan's website. Uh, if you want to follow along with us, it's morganheim.com and it's in her stories tab. But just describe to us how, what was the, what was the gist of the story and what, what were you trying to tell with this series of photos? Yeah. So that story was such a happy kind of accident where uh, I was contacted by an editor at Smithsonian Magazine and they wanted uh, me to go shoot this story on the Lassen Wolf Pack down in Northern California. And so I, I don't know why I had always thought wolves were something other people got to work on, <laughs> um, not me. But ironically, now I've also got a book about to come out um, about wolves and moose um, in Isle Royale. So it's, I've got two projects now. But um, so I I got to go down on assignment for that. And, you know, that was one that fell into my lap. But the experience was... And the story is very interesting because, you know, it's wolves returning to Northern California and California is a no-kill state um, in terms of, um, you know, they don't, they practice non-lethal control. Uh, they still get killed sometimes, uh, um, but uh, not legally. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, yeah, so it, we go down there and they've got some interesting um conservation challenges because they're both dealing with wolves in a, a part of the state that relies very heavily on cattle ranching. And um, they are in a state that has non-lethal control. And also they don't compensate ranchers. So if we're cattle loss, so it, it sets up a very volatile dynamic. And here you have um, a biologist, Kent Lawton, who's working with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, who not only is tracking the wolves and, and the one who's been the most successful at collaring the wolves in California, but um, he's, he's basically living in these communities and really putting a lot of effort into working with the ranchers and listening to them. And, um, and then he's, often living out in the woods for like a, he, you know, a month at a time to, to do this. He's just like in a trailer with his dog. So, so it was, it was a very, you know, cool story to get to work on. And um, when I was there, some issues kind of popped up with access to some of these areas where there was some, there were some tense dynamics between some of the private landowners and CDFW. And so um, they revoked a lot of my access to a lot of the locations and a lot of the, the, the work going on. Like I wasn't allowed to photograph any of the capture or collaring, collaring process, which was like most of the visual guaranteed visuals that I might have if they were successful in catching a wolf while I was there. So um I ended up, the story ended up evolving in a lot of ways where I got to spend a lot of time with Kent just sort of living his life. And a lot of time, um, the ranchers actually gave me a ton of access to um, their property. So it became, I think, a little bit more of a less scientific story and more of a personal story about what it's like to be doing this kind of work out there. And um, to me, that actually is more 
I found that to be more interesting for this story too, like to kind of get more into the heart and soul of the matter um, rather than just documenting process. Mm. That's that's amazing how it evolved into something different for you. You go in with one thing and then it, your circumstances, obviously some beyond your control, you have to really sort of pivot in the moment and make something beautiful uh, still uh, out of out of something that you might not have looked for. What was that dynamic like? You talked about some of the tensions and some of the interactions. How did you feel when you're in those situations? Because I don't know if you were, you know, probably weren't directly in the middle, but sort of as an outsider now looking in and seeing these these interactions and all these different situations coming across what were your feelings going into it? And then as you were right in the middle of understanding the dynamics between humans and wolves in that part of California? It was very interesting. <laughs> like, I mean, so like, you know, I mentioned that some of the access was revoked and, and it was very fresh. I found it very frustrating because it had nothing to do with anything I'd done. It was like, it was all relating to, something that someone else did before I was ever there. And then someone got upset and they got upset at someone else. And it was like all on, I, I was sort of like, I felt like I was at a tennis match, you know, and I was just watching them all back, go back and forth. And, um, and so, you know, that was, that was challenging. And, and there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, there's both, a lot of kind of he said, she said stuff happening, I think, out in these landscapes. Um, and there's also still a lot of willingness to have conversations or to try different methods. Because um, they know at the end of the day, they have to, this is what they, this is what landowners have. Like if they want to have a say that we all have to be talking and and it's going to take a lot of working together to try to figure out how to best to approach these things. And, and so it, it's sort of like being at a, I don't know, it made me kind of like, just feel like you're watching sort of a family Thanksgiving dinner or something where people get in fights <laughs> and then they make up and then they like <laughs> keep working on things. Um, and I, I felt very sympathetic to every side of, of the issue. Like I felt, um, I felt, you know, a lot of empathy for the scientists having to like explain things to, you know, they get told, oh, I, this is what's happening on our land. And then the scientists being like, well, this is, this is what we're observing. So, you know, it, it looks like this to you, but when you like pull it out into the bigger picture, this is what actually it looks like is going on. And, and, um, I also felt sympathy for the ranchers, especially who are just like, we're working really hard and we're trying all these things. And they're convinced that, you know, they're being um, harassed by the wolves a lot. Um, and there's a lot of subjectivity, I think, that can go into that. Um, so at the same time, you know, I had a great time. I had a great time hanging out with all of them. And I, what I found remarkable too, was like, it was very clear that like these ranchers that I was uh, documenting are very conservative, have very different worldviews than I do. And we would just have conversations and um, 
I remember some of them were convinced that um, the government had brought the wolves into California in crates, like in the middle of the night and released wolves into their region. And they said that they had found like the crate left behind. And I was like, do you think that if they went through all that trouble uh, crossing, like being covert, that they would have then just left the crate out there for you to find? And they're like, well, I guess I can see that point, <laughs> you know? So that was, <laughs> that was kind of like interesting to have those conversations, but at no point was I was um, telling them like they were wrong for feeling the way they felt. Um, I think that was really important was to just say like, I can't imagine how frustrating it is to have, you know, your life's passion out here and feel like you're, you're, you're out of control with how you can handle it. Um, so I could understand how that's really frustrating for you. And a lot of them, they don't blame the wolves for that. Um, they say the wolves are just being wolves. So it's, it's definitely, um, it was probably one of the most challenging kind of social dynamics I've ever experienced while photographing a story. And, um, but everyone came out like, I don't know. I, I feel like everyone came out looking human, which is, I think, important with these kinds of things. Yeah, I'm looking at these photos. They're so amazing. Um, yeah, uh, so in a story like this, it, I mean, it seems by the title that the main character, the main characters are are this man and his dog. What what part of their story were you trying mm-hmm. to tell, or are they kind of the 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 vehicle for us to hear the wolves' story? Or how did you feel about the two of them? What was important to to tell about them? For me, what was important to show about them was giving this sense of dedication to the effort. And, um, you know, Kent's been doing this for a long time. Um, He's probably one of the leading experts on wolf conservation and science in the country. And he, he's just kind of like this, you know, he burns the candle at both ends. He works these really long days, but he's extremely, he is extremely loyal to his dog and his dog is loyal to him. And, um, you know, he just puts this all into it. And so there is this, um, kind of, you know, I, I don't know. He's just someone who who really dedicates every bit of energy he has to trying to understand this and help other people understand it. And he's also very pragmatic about it, which I really liked. So um, it's all about fixing problems and understanding issues and um, having patience, but also not bullshitting anyone at the same time, which I really like about his personality. So I, I just tried to try convey some of those elements, um, about his life in there. And luckily, you know, there were enough pictures of the science work that between the science work and then just like him hanging out with his dog who went with him everywhere. Um, we were able to get enough images that the, for the editors to be happy. And of course, you know, actually getting to see wolves a couple of times was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Did you have to change anything? I mean, even, even in terms of your gear, what had to change for you to capture pictures of, of wolves? Was it any different than anything else you've, you've, you've done? I mean, the photographers we've talked to just the, the unanimous 
issue is that they're just so far away. Did you find that to be true? And how did you have to adjust for that? Yeah, they were definitely far away. So I I attempted some camera trapping, just just one camera trap um, in a couple different locations while I was out there. And I was, I had some near encounters with wolves, but I didn't end up getting any on the camera trap. So that would have been the dream. I got coyote and I got um, a black bear that just went to town on a cow carcass night after night. Um, but the, the only times I saw the wolves were, um, twice once was with Kent, um, at a place that he called pup meadow. And so this was a time of year when the pups are still really little and, um, they kind of had this tendency of, the family coming down into this meadow to play and explore and wrestle um, often in the evenings. And so we went out there several times and we, we only, we saw them once um, and that was totally by accident. And so we had to like army crawl up to them as close as we could get basically. And I was just lying on the ground watching them kind of tussle in the grass and um, the, it was still, I mean, I couldn't get any, I was using like a 600 lens with a 1.4 teleconverter on it. And that still doesn't get you that close to the wolves in that instance. So, um, but we got a, a couple really nice frames out of that. And it was, we got to watch them for quite a while before I think the wind shifted and the, one of the, the, the mom wolf or whatever, she caught our scent and started barking at us. And we had to, you know, (laughs) hike our way back out while she's barking at us. But, um, you know, it was very, very cool because for like 20 minutes, they had no idea that we were there and we just saw them being completely just no, no barriers, uh, over their like behavior or anything. And, and we saw a lot of that, like, family dynamic coming out, which was awesome. The other time I saw them was, I was really proud of myself because I found them, Kent gave me a, a, a GPS location of where the wolves had been like several hours before. And then I took a guess based on their behavior previously of what they might be do, doing. And um, I ended up finding them all by myself <laughs> one morning as they were traversing, um, a meadow. And that was, you know, several months later and the pups were, you know, young adult size almost at that point. And they were no longer going to the same locations. Like they could go like 25 miles in a few hours. So, um, I was very, very like pleased with myself that I had found them and also felt really lucky that they, um, either didn't detect me or didn't really care because uh, I was far enough away that they let me kind of like hike for a mile down a meadow as they kind of meandered their way through and sniffed at things and rolled in things and stuff like that. So for you, as you're out there and you're, photo- and you're photographing wolves, where I find your, your dyna- you, you like, you, I feel like you have these two dynamics because you have this uh, to, for your own words, you have this, nerdy intellectual side where you're reading up on everything and then you have this wonderful creative artistic side. So when you're, when you're photographing 
an animal like this, how are you able to balance the, the, both of those portions of your brain to get this thing out that you want to get out? Um, especially when it's from a longer distance away than say, if you were maybe photographing ungulates or things of that nature. Yeah. You know, you always have pictures in your mind of what you want to get. Right. (laughs) And then reality is like, well, hello, this is what's going to happen instead. And then you're trying to make the best of it. So, you know, I was really lucky with that first encounter in Pup Meadow where the wolves were out and it was like going into golden hours. So the light was really pretty. Um, I was fighting against those really tall grasses, which would hide a lot of the the pup. Um, So I'd have to just like lie there and wait for a head to pop up. And, and I, I, I do think about things like, I don't want all the pictures to just look flat or look like the same background. So then I start looking for things like, you know, there's other bushes and stuff around me that I'm also kind of using to hide myself. And I'd find little like windows to shoot through and I'd wait for the wolf to go into that little window. And, um, and then I, I, I think in terms of process, process versus like more artistic is I'm really looking more for moments. So it's a, it's a look or a body posture or, um, um, a moment between two wolves. Like I'm thinking of the, the pup and its older sibling, they're on the ground and they're, they're kissing. Um, and so that to me is like, it's more than just, uh, you know, wolves doing something. It's, it's actually like a familial bonding moment. And I'm, I'm not looking just for like the kiss. I'm looking for like both their nose being noses being at a certain angle, you know, at a certain distance or the ears a certain way. So while I might have all those other photos, I, that's the one I end up picking out of the edit, you know, because it has a little bit more of a feeling to it than the other ones do. And so when you're at, is this, was this the, the pinnacle of your, your wolf, photography experience? Have you been to other places? Have you gone to Yellowstone? Have you been in Idaho or Montana or in Canada at any point? And you had had spoken about your book, which Mm -hmm. will obviously I want to promote as well for for the Isle Royale Wolves. What makes each of those experiences, if, if there are many, unique in their own way? Because it is the same species, but in a different setting. Yeah. Um, Well, I think, so I haven't gotten to shoot wolves anywhere else. I've seen a couple wolves, um, but never gotten to photograph them. So even for the wolf books, so you're going to be like, how did you do a book on wolves and moose and you didn't photograph wolves for it? Uh, So the the wolf pictures in the book are not by me, but but most of the other ones are. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, so, but what I have heard though, so is that, you know, I think there's some places in Yellowstone where you can go and it's not that hard to find the wolves. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so from, from what I've heard from other photographers is that, um, like the situation that I was in, it's, it's near impossible to get to see them 
let alone photograph them. So even though I never got those like frame filling shots, the fact that I got some nice environmental shots and I was able to photograph wolves passing through cow, you know, valleys full of cows and the wolves are just completely ignoring the cows, um, which I thought was really cool. Um, and the cows were pretty much ignoring the wolves too, which I also thought was cool. Um, I, I was really proud of myself. So I think it was really hard. It took yeah. tracking skills. It took luck. It took help from, you know, the biologist who taught me a lot and, and also gave me some GPS coordinates to help get me started off in the right area. And um, I really like, I like it when it's not easy um, because I think it's important to have to work for things and, um, it feels almost like, um, you've been let in a little bit more on a secret when you've had to put that work in even to have a sighting. So that's just like one of my personal things that I like. And, um, now though, if I want to go to like the British coast or Yellowstone, I'm okay. Having like those closer encounters as well too. Sometimes I wouldn't mind that either. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about how unusual that is. Actually, I don't. I don't know if we've. These might be the first photos we've seen of wolves outside of of Yellowstone, which just makes it impressive and interesting because it is so hard to see. It's hard to see basically anything really anywhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's incredible just not to be in a place where animals are comfortable with people and to still be getting pictures of. I mean, what you'd consider very rare wildlife, especially in California. So thank you. It makes me wish I had I had more time to be out there giving it a go. Like I felt like this was just sort of like a teaser taste of what could what could be yeah. accomplished if you had more time. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If anything, it's gonna make you want to go back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so when you're when you're doing your conservation work with your photography, what's what's the information and what's the the aim of what you're trying to get out because you, you really meld these two things together extremely well because you went to school for environmental journalism. So clearly you have the, the, the incentive to do that, you know, by telling these stories with your pictures. So what's your aim? And I, you've done multiple different, again, please everyone, we're going to promote Morgan's website, but if you look at her stories, you, you really span different species, birds and, and, and uh, you know, mammals and, and things of that sort. So what's your, what's the ultimate goal for you as a conservationist also while taking these photographs? I think it's different for every species or issue that, that it's attached to. Um, sometimes it, it might be helping some sort of nonprofit partner um, or a researcher communicate, you know, what they're trying to communicate. But um Sometimes it could be attached to trying to strategize and figure out how to get like um, a piece of legislation, you know, passed or overturned, Um, or it could be to um, raise funds for different uh, efforts. And in other times, it's, you know, something that I really personally find interesting is trying to figure out how to get non-traditional audiences engaged with these issues in ways that feels inviting. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm often thinking about, uh, the 
who we might need to reach, who doesn't have the same worldview that I do necessarily, but might have a same value set and trying to figure out, okay, how do we kind of, you know, go at this issue from this, this particular value set or concern and, and hopefully then open people up from a broader spectrum of interests or political spectrums to at least engaging with the subject in a, in a, in a more productive way than just sticking in your heels into your respective corners. Mm -hmm. So I like, I like trying to figure that out. That's my own personal challenge on every project is to try to figure an element of that out. Um, And that's more of just a personal challenge, but I think in the long run with conservation, um, that's going to be really, really critical and um, is something that people haven't put as much effort into in the past and are starting to pay more attention to now. And, and I do think that I, I used to think that awareness was sort of a cop-out with conservation storytelling, but quite frankly, at the end of the day, uh, if you don't have awareness, you've just cut yourself off at the knees. Like you can't go to the next steps if you haven't created that groundswell of interest and support or curiosity, you know, about the the subject matter. So I think that that's one of our big roles with the storytelling is to make this feel present and accessible to all sorts of people, regardless of your background. No, I I agree a hundred percent. And I, I love that you're, and again, all the photographers we've spoken to have this, this ethical boundary too, which I, which I, love from, from all, from all photographers and all, all these, you know, wolf watchers and, and, you know, wildlife watchers is that there is this, they understand most of the time, this barrier between crossing the line and invading that space and letting the wild be wild. And I think what you're, what you're trying to do to invite everyone into that space, even from a distance is a, is a good thing. And I think a lot of, you know, so I, I love the work that you're doing with that. So I, I agree a hundred percent. I want to touch on the, the knee and Raven, the neon Raven story lab mm-hmm. and the her wild vision initiative, which I, I believe you founded the first and you co-founded the second mm-hmm. just briefly touch on, are those partially, I know her wild vision initiative is for women in photography, I think specifically mm-hmm. and giving people uh, an avenue there. Um, but just go in briefly what those two do and, or what they promote and are they in the mm-hmm. conservation realm as well? Yes, they are. So Neon Raven Story Labs is, it's basically taking what I was doing already and kind of form, formalizing it or formalizing it into a more kind of like business, official business umbrella that has clear kind of strategy and categories. So, and I, I call it, you know, I picked the, the Raven because they are these powerful storytellers and symbolic birds. And I also think they're really cool. Um, And the lab element, not only from my science background, but because I look at the story creation process as being sort of like a lab um, environment where I'm bringing in different um, creatives that I really respect. And we kind of hash out these approaches for conservation storytelling. So um, that that's what Neon Raven Story Labs is, and um, the Her Wild Vision Initiative really came about um, just from, well, obviously being a woman in a in a fairly male dominated profession, um, 
And also, you know, it, it was during that time, you know, Me Too and and everything and, and diversify and and really wanting to not just be that passive like person who's outraged and being a productive member of trying to help create that change. So my friend Jamie Heimbuck and I, um, she's another conservation photographer, decided, well, what if we just create this database of women working in this industry, either as photographers or filmmakers? Um, and we kind of pulled a little bit on the, the science background in that um, one of the things, some of these other, there's some other fantastic platforms that are out there, um, like Women Photograph, for instance. Um, but we wanted to make a, a, a site specifically for women working in, in conservation, science, and environmental um, photography. Mm. We, we created her world vision to basically act as a directory for people to find us to, and hire more women out in the field. So you can search by categories. Um, you know, you can search for a 360 um, underwater filmmaker and cave diver, and you'll, you'll find a woman who, who can shoot that. And her name is Jenny Adler. She's awesome. Um, yeah. So there's just all sorts of, it, it was really incredible to see the, just the volume of talent that was came together to start making this database. And we send out calls for application. Um, you know, we're kind of, Jamie and I do this all volunteer. So we're kind of finding our, our way through it and how much workload we can handle. But um, people like once or twice a year, we open up applications and then anyone who applies, it's free. And um, you have to be a working professional. Uh, but you don't have to be like, you know, a National Geographic photographer. You can be early in your career. And and then one of the great things for everyone who applies is regardless of whether you get in, um, your work gets put in front of some of the biggest editors in the industry. So we have like Kathy Moran, who um, is the, the director of photography for National Geographic magazine. Um, you know, we have... The editor of the director of photography for Audubon. We've got producers working with Jackson Wild Media Lab, and and so we've got really really top folks within the industry who are looking at the applicants who come through, and then we just try to do things like um, you know there's some opportunities that come up that are made available to our members like discounts on festival entries or. Um, we're working on some fellowships and working with Red Digital Cinema to, to kind of work on some programs um, for the Herwell Vision membership. So it, it's just a great way to, to, I think, make us feel seen. And um, I think at the same time, make it feel easy for the people trying to hire more diverse photographers to find that diversity. That's a great initiative. I Yeah. That is very, very awesome. But yeah, both of those things are fantastic. I, before, so we're going to promote, I have one, my final question for you, and then I want to promote your website and the book and everything else and where they can go to see all these things is Morgan, when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Um, <laughs> deepness. <laughs> um, to me, wolves are this deep ancient presence in the 
forests that uh, has been lost for a long time and is starting to come back again. And it's this kind of like everyone who encounters a, a wolf or hears a wolf, just hearing that howl, like, like there's no sound that penetrates as deeply into your soul as a wolf howl in the forest. And there always seems like there's so much context behind those, those sounds. Um, and the whole forest, you know, responds to it. So um, that's what I think of when I think of wolves. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, please tell everybody, Morgan, your, your website where they can check out all your photos and your stories. If it's separate to find out about Neon Raven Story Labs, Her Wild Vision, and the book that you told us about that you're promoting as well? Sure. Um, well, you can see some of my work on neonravenlab.com. Um, you can see a lot more of my photography, including those wolf pictures on my personal website, morganheim.com. Um, and Heim is spelled H-E-I-M. And, um, or on my Instagram, at moheim. Cool. And then when is the the book, the I.O. Royale? Uh, tell us the title um, and when that's going to be available to purchase. Yeah, um, I believe, so it's a scientist at work book by Houghton Mifflin Publishing, and it's called Wolves and Moose, (laughs) and it'll be coming out, I believe, in August of 2022. You should be able to get that on like Amazon or in most major bookstores. No, everybody, please, uh, first of all, Morgan, thank you so much for um, coming on and spending time with us and, and sharing your stories and sharing your photographs and, and really your, your unified vision of what the future can be with the, the place the, the, the things you've started and just your stories that you're telling. And it's, it's all beautiful. And, you know, one of these days that we'll all make a trip to Yellowstone, we should just have a huge, like, like a viewing party, all of us. Yeah. Get all these people haven't been there yet. That'd be great. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> Yeah. I know. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, both of you guys, for for having me on. It's a real pleasure, and it was a nice surprise. And and uh, yeah, I feel like I got to enter another part of the world. Our pleasure. Thank your you. Podcast yeah, series. absolutely. So you You're about much. welcome back anytime. You know, maybe when the book comes out, we'll promote. You know, come back on and talk about mm-hmm. it. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But yeah, everybody, visit her. Visit her Instagram. Visit uh, Morgan's website. Uh, you'll be blown away with all the stuff that she's done. So yep. again, Morgan Heim, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, How's to you all out there? And we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. 